Hello, and welcome to the DeMarco Polo Show on 88.9 KUCI-FM in Irvine. The show is dedicated to Southern California people doing interesting things and issues concerning the region. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. We're broadcasting from the University of California Irvine campus and on the web at KUCI.org and on iTunes at College Radio. Today is Wednesday, July 9th, 2012, and my guest is Dennis Palumbo. He's formerly a Hollywood screenwriter with the feature film My Favorite Year as one of his many credits. Dennis is a therapist in L.A. whose clients are mostly writers and other creative types. His work helping writers has been profiled in the New York Times, Premier Magazine, Faden, Angelino, GQ, and the Los Angeles Times, as well as on NPR and CNN. He continues to write and publish. His most recent crime novel is Fever Dream, published by Poisoned Pen Press in August of 2010. And he also, wait, no, that can't be right. That was more recent. It was last year. Let's say 2011, but we'll have him talk about that. And he also wrote Writing from the Inside Out um, that deals with writers' impediments and uh, so much else that you can you can find out on his website, DennisPalumbo.com. And if you have any questions for Dennis during this hour, you can text them to me at 949-337-2752. Hey, Dennis. Hey, Barbara. How are you doing? Good. Now tell me, Fever Dream was 2011, yes? That was last year. The first novel in the series, Mirror Image, was published in 2010. And then Fever Dream, the sequel, came out in 2011. Yes. I'm currently writing the third one, Night Terrors, and it shall be out next year. Well, you know, this this uh, kind of draws us right into the topic of the show. Well, so many things I want to talk about, actually, but um, how do you fit your writing in? I mean, you, you're a full-time therapist, and uh, you write short pieces, and you write books, and how do you do it all? <clears throat> well, slowly, actually. Um I, I write every day at lunch, and uh, sometimes, you know, that's an hour, and once in a while it's two hours. I do have a full practice, so, you know, often I just write a page or two. But uh, after a year, year and a half, that's a book. Um, you know, mystery novels, usually what the novelist tries to do, the author to build his readership, tries to have a book come out every year. Um, I'm not able to make that. I, I make like a year and a half, and in fact, when Night Terrors comes out in 2013, it will be two years between Fever Dream and Night Terrors because I have a full-time job as a psychotherapist. Um, I also have a column that I write for um, Psychology Today and their website called Hollywood on the Couch, and I also blog for the Huffington Post. So if I'm working like on the novel as I am now and I hit a rough spot, I'll use that lunch hour to write a Huffington Post piece or a column for the Psychology Today site. Uh, I try to write every day a little bit, and, you know, page by page, it turns out to turn out into a book. Also, in terms of writing every day, I I know that, um, at least from my own experience, when I do that, I stay plugged into whatever the project is, as opposed to leaving it even for a few days, and then having to find my way back in is uh, so much more difficult. I find it so, though I have to be very clear. I have some of my most successful writer patients, you know, people who write bestsellers or who write uh, very successful screenplays. 
uh, they'll often go months and months and months and not write at all mm-hmm. and just do this blitz. Um, you know, one of my favorite novelists, the late John Fowles, that's how he worked. Uh, you know, he would write nothing for a year or two, and then he wrote the first draft of The French Lieutenant's Woman in, in like, six weeks with these 18-hour days, you know. So it's not like I believe there's any one way to be a writer. But for me, I guess because I'm kind of a blue-collar Italian-American from Pittsburgh, I have a, a very clear work ethic, you know. So it works better for me to work on it a little every day. And like you, I do find it keeps me in the world of the book. Mm-hmm. If, I, if I don't write for like a week and a half... I have to read everything from page one all over again to get kind of back into it. Yeah, and it sounds like, you know, what you what you said about John Fowles, that, you know, he didn't write for long periods and then would, would work, you know, hours and hours a day. But he it sounds like he was working on the project and was just ripping through it. Yeah. So that so that he was with it and not like, ah, I'll work on it today, I'll work on it next Friday, I'll work on it, you know. He was he stayed with it. That's right. And, and I think for there are writers in my practice for whom it's like a fever descends, you know, and you have to blitz through it that way. And when I was a screenwriter, when I was in Hollywood, once in a while, if I had like a rewrite that was due on a screenplay, I would do the traditional thing. You know, I'd go get a hotel room for three days and just order room service and write 20 hours a day till it was done. But, you know, I was a younger man now. At my age now, it would kill me, I think. But I could do that when I was in my 30s. Yeah, and it's fun to uh, be somewhere where there's no distractions and where you can just kind of hone in on whatever you're trying to do. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of the listeners of, of uh, my other show, Writers on Writing, are probably more familiar with you because you've been on that show a few times and you've been at the salon. Um, this show, we may have uh, some people who who are not familiar with you and your work, and I would love to um, sort of give them a little background on how you found your way to become a therapist. Sure. Um, I, I started out, as you mentioned, I was a, a TV and movie writer. I, I came from uh, Pittsburgh, where, where I was born and raised, and came out to Hollywood, and um, I wrote television and film. I, I was a writer on uh, a show called Welcome Back, Cotter, which I'm sure most of your audience is too young to remember. But um, I did that. In fact, my, my then writing partner and I wrote the first episode of Love Boat, which um, I still get residuals. I have a 13-cent residual check from the Balkans from our episode of Love Boat. So we're still out there spreading American culture all over the world, I'm happy to say. Um, but I had a really good run. I, I can't complain at all. I had uh, the opportunity to move into movies. I, I guess the film for which I'm best known that I co-wrote with Norman Steinberg is My Favorite Year with Peter O'Toole. Um, but at the same time also, I was going through a kind of personal crisis. Uh, in my late 30s, um, I was in therapy, and I sort of fell in love with the process. And paradoxically, at the same time, uh, I had been working on a film about mountain climbing. And, you know, in those days, the studio would just give you a credit card and say, okay, go research it and come back, you know. So I traveled all over the world and climbed mountains and ended up living in Nepal for three months. And I had a, a little bit of a razor edge experience where I, I kind of realized when I came back that I, I was really liking therapy and I liked the process so much I started taking classes. 
um, toward getting, you know, my degree, my, my graduate degree. I wasn't thinking absolutely clearly that I wanted to change my career, but I kept taking classes. And sooner or later, I had my degree. I had begun an internship after volunteering at a psych hospital for a while. And then finally, uh, I had accumulated enough intern hours to take the test. And that was the real difficult moment for me because I realized if I did get a license as a therapist, I I was going to probably change careers because I like doing it so much. And so after six years, which is how long it took for me to get licensed, um, when I did finally pass the written and the orals and, and became a licensed therapist, I realized that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And it would also give me the opportunity to return to writing, which has always been my first love, and to just write for love. You know, one of the problems when you're a screenwriter, particularly in a business as fickle as Hollywood, is you're not only trying to make a living doing it, but you're trying to derive a sense of meaning as an artist. And it's a very marketplace-driven town and marketplace-driven industry. Mm-hmm. I found that for me, my day job as a therapist, you know, my income came from my day job and has for the past 26 years as a therapist, which allows me to write exactly what I want to write. And that's the joy I get from writing prose. Um, so my feeling now is that, gee, you know, if I write something and people like it, great. If they don't, bummer. But it doesn't affect whether I can pay my mortgage or put my kid through school. Mm-hmm. And that was a liberation for me. It was all of a sudden I was feeling about writing the way I had when I was in college. Um, I had I was an English major. I'd always wanted to be a novelist. And uh, I'm pleased to say that uh, the first Daniel Rinaldi novel, Mirror Image, was published when I was 60. So uh, I finally am doing the work that I thought I always wanted to do. And I get to be a therapist during the day, working with fascinating people, doing work that I really love, and being with people all day long, intermixed with the solitude of that hour or hour and a half that I get to spend working in the world of my mystery novels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a good balance for me. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. But, you know, it's funny that you say that, you know, you finally published a novel at 60, and, you know, that was your dream. And I would... I'm going to guess and say that a lot of writers would say, man, you had my favorite year, you wrote for TV, now that's my dream. Why wasn't that your dream? Well, it was for a long time. Uh, once, See, it, it kind of happened by accident. I'd always <laughs> wanted to be a prose writer. And, uh, in fact, the day I got hired to write on Welcome Back, Cotter was the day I also sold my first mystery short story to Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. Interesting. It was exactly the same day. Hmm. But when I had left Pitt, when I had left the writing department at Pitt, the only job I could get as an English major was writing ad copy. And so I worked at an ad agency and started writing and directing TV and radio commercials. So when I came out to Los Angeles, I sort of directed my thoughts to broadcasting, to film and television. And uh, I always liked writing prose and continued to do so. Even when I was a screenwriter, I was writing articles for the Los Angeles Times. I was, you know, writing and selling short stories to magazines all over the place. I always liked writing prose, but to be a full-time TV and film writer took 
all of my time. I did really like it, and I was very, very lucky. I, I have no complaints about show business. But for a writer, the hardest part for me, I found, was while it could be very lucrative, your voice was diluted by the amount of people that could give you notes and make changes and take the project away from you. You know, to me, the thing that's so frustrating for my patients who are screenwriters and television writers is they're the most important people in the project, and they're the only ones who don't have script approval. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it me, you know. So, so I think when I left the business to be a therapist, it wasn't like, well, the heck with show business. It was more that I wanted to become a therapist. I liked doing the work with people. But I'm not going to deny that it also is... Um, more gratifying to write prose and not have meetings and not get notes and not have someone tell me, well, this is a really nice character, but can it be a female? <laughs> Instead of being 40, can he be 28? <laughs> Don't miss those meetings, I yeah. have to tell you. You are listening to the DeMarco Polo Show. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. I'm talking with Dennis Palumbo, who is an author of Fever Dream and Writing from the Inside Out. He's a therapist in L.A. and so many other things. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious, because you said something about, you were talking about, you know, writing a little bit every day, and, and I started thinking about one of the problems that most writers have, and at least beginning writers or writers between projects or maybe writers getting rejected by agents or publishers. And and that is the problem of self-motivation and how if you don't sit down and write and without waiting for that contract or without waiting for a deadline given to you by someone else, you may never get that contract or that deadline that someone else um, says, you know, we need it by. So what do you, I mean, what do you have to say about self-motivation? What do you, what's the problem there? I, know, I mean, I realize it could be many different things, but... I was just going you know. to say, the, the, the issue is there, there's no one-size-fits-all mm-hmm. kind of response to that question. I mean, one of the things that I do as a therapist, when a patient is procrastinating or they're struggling with blocks or they're having a difficult time starting a new project, who they are, where they come from, the family dynamics that help form them are such an integral part of the way they approach the work that it's really on a case-by-case basis. I will say that, in my experience, the most debilitating thing is the meaning you give to what you're doing. So let's say you want to start a new project and you're hesitant to start or you're anxious about beginning or you're procrastinating or whatever, as painful and difficult as that is, it's made doubly so if you give it some self-invalidating meaning. Like, wow, I bet, you know, John Updike never hesitates to start writing. Oh, wow, I bet, you know, uh, Robert Town never, you know, hesitated to write his next screenplay. Or maybe I'm not a real writer after all. Or maybe my parents were right and I should have gone to law school. I mean, as painful as it is to struggle with motivation... It's even more painful the meaning we give to that struggle. Mm-hmm. And so when someone says to me, gee, you know, uh, what does it mean if I'm blocked? I always say, well, it means you're a writer. <laughs> now let's find out what you think it means to be blocked or what you think it means to procrastinate. Now, in general, 
you know, this is a huge generalization. Procrastination, for example, is usually a fear of shameful self-exposure. You know, the, the imagined danger of criticism if you finish it or that it'll, you'll write it and it won't be as good as you wanted it to be or you'll get a response that's so invalidating that it'll be painful. And, and I think then you have to look at, well, what's in your childhood? How, how was criticism, how, how did you experience criticism? What meaning did you give to it? And, and if you look at things like procrastination and hesit, you know, being hesitant to, to start a project, oftentimes it's shame-based. Yeah. And you need to uncover the source of that shame. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I've, I've heard you say that before, and I always find that really interesting because um, it probably would not occur to someone that the reason for procrastinating has to do with shame. You know, it's really interesting. Well, I think that that's, it's very hard for people to understand it because, you know, on the whole, creative people or people who struggle to be creative have an assumption that if you're smart and you have an idea and you have an aesthetic and you've worked hard on you know, developing a craft, that you should just sit down and write. But the moment you sit down and create, the moment you sit down and try to create, Every dynamic from your family of origin is operating. And, and every type of feeling is available to you from, from insecurity and self-doubt to envy of other people who are successful to a belief that what you're writing is never good enough. I, I see this sometimes with people who get caught in outlines. Mm-hmm. Keep trying to create what I call the bulletproof outline that if they just created the perfect outline for their novel, the perfect outline for their screenplay or TV pilot, then it would be impervious to criticism. It'll just turn out great. But to do that, they have to write the perfect outline, and they can't get out of it. It's sort of like I remember many times I've had patients who are Ph.D. candidates, and they're working on their dissertation and they can't finish the dissertation. They always think there's one more resource they should look at, one more book they should read for research. It's a way to try to protect themselves from what they imagine will be an intolerable criticism when the the dissertation is finally finished. And, And the reality is we can never make a piece of writing bulletproof. I would even argue we don't even finish a piece of writing. We just abandon it. Mm Mm-hmm. You just abandon it and, and send it out and do the best you can. We had uh, Percival Everett on the show a while back, and he's a novelist and teaches teaches at USC, I think. Um, and he said something to the effect, because he has a lot of novels out, and he said something to the effect of he's not a perfectionist, he's a completionist. I like that phrase a lot. I like that too. Yeah, because... Uh, uh, not only do I think perfect is the enemy of the good, I think perfect is the enemy of getting anything done. Mm-hmm. And remember, too, what perfectionism is, is an attempt to ward off shame by making something impervious to criticism. And nothing is impervious to criticism, nor should it be. Yeah, interesting. Do, do you find that writers, because I know you have a lot of different types of clients, creative-type clients, do, do you find that the problems writers face are different from the problems other artists or even non-artists face? Not in my experience. 
I mean, I have I run the gamut. I have a lot of directors. I have composers, reporters, graphic artists, actors. Um, I have primarily film and TV writers, but I have all those other art forms as well. And I think procrastination, feeling blocked, fear of rejection, anxiety, depression, and loneliness are aspects that every creative artist struggles with. Every creative artist. And the other thing that I think is so surprising, particularly for people starting out, is that, you know, every successful artist used to be a struggling artist, and all my successful artists still struggle. Mm-hmm. A really smart, evolved, healthy artist doesn't panic over a block or be, or procrastinating, whatever. They see it as, oh, this is just me struggling with that issue today. It doesn't mean anything. You know, it's like my own experience in therapy. I've been a patient in therapy on and off for almost 20 years. I'm as neurotic and insecure as I ever was. I just don't hassle myself about it anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that's the difference. Some of my most successful patients whose films you see or whose TV shows you watch every week are in my office talking about how stuck they are or act on Act 2 or how they're not turning out to be the writer they wanted to be or whatever. And they see this as part and parcel of their interior journey. They don't think it means they have no right to the success they have or that they're fraudulent. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, I think you were the one, too, who said that uh, something to the effect of Norman Mailer, you know, was you know didn't like the fact that he had to sit down every day and be Norman Mailer. Yeah, he he talked toward the end of his life about how difficult it was as a writer because he had a reputation. So he said it wasn't. I never felt like I was sitting down to write. He said I felt like Norman Mailer was sitting <laughs> down to write, and he had to live up to that. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the problems when we become successful is that then that becomes uh, uh, the new sort of albatross around our neck. I remember very clearly after Mirror Image, my first uh, mystery novel came out, and, and you know I was very gratified by the reviews and the blurbs and stuff, and the whole time I was writing Fever Dream, the sequel, I was convinced it wasn't as good. And I thought, oh, now you know the chickens are going to come home to roost or whatever. And then, you know, Fever Dream came out, got very well received, so I'm halfway through Night Terrors, and I'm convinced it's not as good as Fever Dream. The difference is I now realize this is what I do. And so I just accept this is what I do. I'll probably feel this way all the time. When, when I used to write a column for the Writers Guild magazine called The Writer's Life, and it was a monthly column, I wrote 92 of them. And each month when the deadline was there, I'd sit down and be absolutely convinced that I didn't have a column this month. And I realized after about column 60 or 65 that that's what I always tell myself. But I always end up writing a column. Right, right, right. So I never, I never try to, like, fix who I am. I just go, oh, that's what I do. I sit here, tell myself I don't have an idea, and then I write a column. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad you're here for the hour. We're going to take a real short break. And when we are, come back, we'll be here with Dennis Palumbo a little bit more. So, uh... Stay with us. Don't go anywhere. And welcome back 
to the DeMarco Polo Show on 88.9 KUCI-FM in Irvine. We're broadcasting from UCI uh, on the Irvine campus, and we're at KUCI.org and on iTunes at College Radio. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and I've been here with Dennis Palumbo for the last half hour, and we have a half hour more to go. Hi, Dennis. How are you doing, Barbara? Good. Um, more more questions. Um you know, I, I wanted to ask you something about about promotion because, you know, you write columns that I imagine that you don't get paid much for, um, but that are in great publications, great online publications, and I'm going to guess and say that you do it in part just to keep your name out there, to write shorter things. Um, you know, the time between books can be a while, and... And that any um, publisher would love their writers to do things like that, to keep their name out there and to, to do that sort of promotion. Is that how you see it? Well, I do. I mean, actually, uh, I'm pretty lame when it comes to Internet promotion. I mean, I like to write, so for me it works better to like write a regular column for Psychology Today's website or to write a Huffington Post, both of those are very well-regarded sites, and oftentimes the articles go viral. And so it's very good publicity for me, uh, particularly because, uh, you know, people can learn about me. There's a little bio so they can learn about me. But I have many uh, of my patients and fellow authors who, you know, because they're not, you know, having a full-time practice as I am, they're on Facebook three hours a day. They're Twittering, tweeting, whatever. I mean, I barely do or take advantage of what's available for promotion uh, online. Um, I- I'm very pleased that I get the kind of response I get from, from the pieces that I write, but I'm always being told by people, oh, you should be tweeting <laughs> as a day, and you should be, you know, on blog tours. I mean, I'll occasionally write, uh, uh, a blog for some website, like uh, I'll go on a mystery website and do a Q&A or something like that. But there are colleagues of mine, you know, mystery writing colleagues in particular, who do like blog tours where, where they literally on hundreds of sites. And, um, you know, I speak at about five or eight, five to eight conferences a year. I have colleagues who do a conference every weekend. Mm-hmm. You know, so... But, you know, I like my family. <laughs> I'm them once in a while, you know. So it, it, I, I always say to people, I do as well as I can, given the fact that I'm kind of a stick in the mud. <laughs> but there are really people who know how to work the Internet and um, who really know how to use it to build their brand. Hmm. I admire those people, um, but I'm just not one of them. I do the best I can. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I always assume that when I do my column uh, for Psychology Today or I write a Huffington Post piece, it's not only because the topic interests me, because I just write about what interests me, but I'm also assuming it just keeps my name out there, mm-hmm. you know, because it doesn't hurt if somebody Googles my name and there's 35 pages, you know, that, that works. Right, that works. And uh, again, I think that I mean, at least what I've heard is is that publishers just want you to be doing something, whatever you're comfortable with in terms of having it be your platform, because everybody's not going to do the same thing. And uh, yeah, tweeting and 
all that, but, you know, for some it doesn't work like you, and you have this other wonderful platform. Yeah, I, I think that I, I just use the ones that are available to me and uh, that, that are within my comfort zone, and frankly, so that I have a life. Yeah. No. Um, having a life is very important to me, um, <laughs> and so that's why I, I modulate it as much as I can. Do you have anything to say about writing autobiographical fiction? Because I, I find that the one downside to it is that too often, um, as a writer, you want to stick to the truth instead of what works for the fiction. Yeah, I mean, uh, whenever I've talked about, first of all, I have a couple thoughts about this. I think all writing is autobiographical anyway, but in the sense that you bring your own experiences and memories and prejudices and ideas mm-hmm. in your writing. I mean, if you're writing a pirate novel that takes place 500 years ago, I still think it's autobiographical. You know, because your ideas of what, you know, life on the high seas are or, you know, the research you chose, every pirate movie you've ever seen, you know, all these things in, in influence what you write. But the thing that's really important, and, and, and this is something that a lot of new writers don't get, is that when you are writing autobiographical material, when you're writing, um, you know, memoir or whatever, the least important thing is what really happened. Because what you're going for is the emotional truth of something. And, you know, if it doesn't work as a story, then it doesn't matter what the incidents were. And I remember so often when I would teach writing at UCLA Extension, people would write, you know, a scene or they'd write a short story or they'd write uh, a TV episode and it wouldn't really work, and they'd go, yeah, but that's what really mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. And I would say, but it doesn't work as a story. There are certain dynamics that are required in a story. There are certain satisfactions a reader must have. You know, and I always think a, a, a great example of this is in the film version of, of uh, the book Seabiscuit. I don't know if your listeners saw that movie, but mm-hmm. in the movie, uh, uh, Seabiscuit, Jeff Bridges' son is tragically killed, and then as a result, when he meets the young um, jockey, mm-hmm. I forgot, what's it, Toby McGuire? Toby McGuire, yeah. And sort of he becomes like a surrogate father, and Toby McGuire becomes kind of a replacement son. And it's a very nice little dynamic. Except in real life, that character had two other children. Mm-hmm. And so when you make the movie, you get rid of the two other children. Because that would destroy the thematic connection. Yeah. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. And people are outraged when I tell them this, but it's the truth. Especially because, and this is where we get, you know, a little bit more into the clinical world, the reality is there is no what really happened. If you're describing an argument you had with your mother when you were a teenager, you're not describing the argument. You're describing the argument as you remember it 25 years later and how you punch up that memory. And that if we had your mother here and she were describing the argument, she would have an entirely different perspective on it. So in terms of your own life, there is no what really happened, especially in terms of your emotional response to it, your subjective experience of it. You know, we punch up our memories all day long. I mean, what's that thing Joan Didion said? We tell ourselves stories to survive. Mm -hmm. So if I were to say to you, oh, Barbara, what was your high school like? Or what was your experience like when you were in high school? You would 
think of four or five examples that reinforce the narrative you describe as your high school experience, even though there might have been seven or eight other incidents that contradict that. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? So if somebody says, oh, man, I was never popular in high school, and they go, well, I'll tell you that time at the lunchroom, they'll pick four or five incidents that they remember that validate that point of view and forget the times people were nice to them. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't fit the narrative. Right. And people don't do this because they're bad. They do it because it's literally the human condition. Mm-hmm. You cannot not create narrative. Noam Chomsky said, narrative is hardwired into the human brain. Hmm. And so there's no other way to look at our personal story, our own autobiography. There's no other way to look at it other than as a narrative. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you find that... Um Writers, um, writing reflects their lives because I'm thinking of um, a line, I forget who said it, but someone said, if you want to change your writing, change your life. Well, that's an interesting, that's an interesting thought. I think most good artists, whether they're writers or painters or composers, whatever, their life experience so infuses their work it's what makes it relevant for other people. You know, uh, Emerson said one time, to know that what is true for your in your private heart is true for everyone, that is genius. And I think that the more we can mine our own personal experiences, the more vivid and relevant the material will be for others. I mean, one of the things that's so kind of magical about writing is the more personal and idiosyncratic some detail or event is that you describe, the more it seems to generalize out to everybody. Mm-hmm. Everyone can relate to it. And if not, then we wouldn't be able to relate to stories about the Tudor kings, or we wouldn't be able to relate to what Elizabeth R. went through. If everybody didn't have some part of themselves that, that you know, mirrors that human condition, we wouldn't be able to relate to it. Mm-hmm especially because I believe everyone has operatic passions. I really do. I mean, if you took the clerk at your local supermarket and talked to him for 20 minutes about his life, you'd hear stories of a family's financial ruin, somebody who was abused as a kid, someone who had diagnosed with a mental disorder, someone mm-hmm. who ran off and joined the Army, you know, and you're, it would sound like a soap opera. And I think everyone's life has these large operatic elements to it. Hmm. Interesting. You're listening to the DeMarco Polo Show. I'm speaking with Dennis Palumbo, a therapist in Los Angeles and a writer and a novelist and uh, so much more. And you can find more on him at DennisPalumbo.com. So back to Hollywood. How does a new writer find his or her way in Hollywood? I mean, do you, you know, is it is it different now than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Well, in my experience with my patients, it's harder today than it was when I broke in in the early 70s. You know, that seems like the ice age um, <laughs> compared to now. But it does seem more difficult, not impossible, but more difficult um, in the sense that the business model has changed, the economics of television and film have changed. And yet, paradoxically, there are more ways in than there ever were before. Not only are there, you know, a zillion cable channels, but you could do uh, an Internet series. 
You know, um, you you can write for the internet. You can, you know, turn your script idea into a graphic novel, publish it yourself out of a your basement, and then get a studio to option it. You know, I think the regular model, you know, where you pitch an idea to a movie studio, that model is disappearing. Um, but as hard as it's always been to break in, and I think it is harder today because of that model, there's also kind of more ancillary ways to get in. I mean, when I was breaking into the business, there weren't HD cameras. I have patients who just take an HD camera, three actor friends, go out into the desert and make a movie, mm-hmm. $1,500, and then sell it online or sell the DVDs. And all you got to do is get that movie into a festival somewhere. And the next thing you know, Hollywood comes calling. Mm-hmm. That didn't exist when I was starting out. Yeah. But everything changes. You just have to know how it changes. When I was beginning as a TV writer, the way you broke in is you took a very popular television show. In my case, it would be like MASH or the Mary Tyler Moore show. And you wrote a spec episode. In other words, you wrote an episode as if you were on the writing staff of that show demonstrate to Hollywood that you could watch something and replicate it. Well, now that's not how you break into television. Now what studios and networks want to see is a spec pilot. They want to see an original idea for which you write the opening episode. Hmm. Even though they may never buy it or make it, they'll read it and go, oh, this guy understands how to write, and then they'll put you on the mentalist. Mm-hmm. You know, but the days of, well, oh, I'll just write a spec episode of Law and Order Special Victims Unit, those days are over. Mm-hmm. So it's changed. So what about, like, I mean, you mentioned movies for cable. I mean, is that, it would seem to me that it might be easier if you're writing, if you're wanting to write long form, if you're write, wanting to write a movie, that it might make more sense to pick, an, pick a, sort of a style of a channel or, you know, a movie, whether it be Hallmark or... FX or Lifetime and write a movie that might fit that style. Yeah, those those are networks that all have a particular um, brand. Mm-hmm. There's certain movies that Lifetime will do and other movies they won't. And the same is true of Hallmark. Um, the same is true of HBO. Like, HBO likes to do historical movies, but only with movie stars in them. You know what I mean? They like true stories. Whereas Hallmark, you know, likes sort of more, you know, softer, more family-oriented. Lifetime, I mean, for a long time, it was just women got done wrong, took the guy to court. <laughs> I mean, court. That was every Lifetime movie. And, you know, they broadened that. So, yeah, I think in that case, it's a, it's a good idea to look at what it is they're buying. The other thing to remember, too, is if you're interested in personal drama, television's the place to go because they're not making movies like that anymore. Mm-hmm. They make tentpole movies. They make like three or four movies. They make R-rated romantic comedies or R-rated sex comedies like The Hangover. Or they make $1 million horror films. Or they make giant tentpole movies. Mm-hmm. That's what they make. You know, the joke is if you want to, you can't pitch a movie to Warner Brothers if somebody isn't wearing a cape. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So, you know, that's, if, you know, given the, like, for example, you had mentioned 
uh, the film I co-wrote, My Favorite Year, mm-hmm. couldn't sell that movie today. Hmm. You could not make My Favorite Year today. Could you sell it to a cable to, uh, cable movie channel? You could sell it to a cable movie channel if um, you had a big movie star attached. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, if you're going to do something in period, on the whole, they want it to have historical significance, hmm. particularly because HBO's had such good luck with Warm Springs about FDR, Gathering mm-hmm. Storm about Churchill, um, Recount uh, about the, the Bush and Gore presidential election, and the one they just did, Game Change, which was their biggest hit in 10 years, about Sarah Palin and John McCain. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's become the big thing at HBO to do something historical, but only with a movie star in it, Mm -hmm. you know. We have a few minutes left with Dennis Palumbo on the DeMarco Polo Show. Um, You know, know, just all this talk about Hollywood, I'm wondering, what about ageism? I mean, like you said earlier, you sold your first novel at 60, or uh, it was published at 60, is, I mean, what about Hollywood? Do you have to be under 20, <laughs> under 30 to sell something? And does it change between uh, whether it's a movie, a feature film, or whether it's a cable movie or a TV pilot or, you know, is there ageism going on still? A pretty, that's a pretty broad date. <laughs> uh, first of all, Mirror Image wasn't my first novel. It was my first mystery novel. Actually, my first novel, I, I sold to Bantam in 1978. It was a science fiction novel called City Wars, but but Mirror Image was my first mystery novel. Um, yes, of course, there's ageism in, in Hollywood. In fact, uh, there was just a big suit where a lot of writers who feel that their work dried up after the age of 40 or 45 as a result of ageism all got a little bit of a class action suit, all got a little bit of a settlement. Of course, there's ageism. Um, it's less so certainly in books, um, but in television, if you haven't, like, if you're not running your own show by 50, it's very unlikely you're going to be on staff on somebody's show. Uh, sitcoms are even worse. Um, not to, I don't know if you remember, but when the sitcom Friends first hit, uh, they asked um, Marta Kaufman and David Crane, the creators, what's the secret of the show's success? And they said, we don't have any writer on this staff older than 30. Mm-hmm. And that changed everything in television. And so, you know, what I find so bizarre is you have so many sitcoms now about people raising teenagers, and none of the <laughs> writers who are old enough to have raised teenagers can get jobs on that show. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, ageism is rampant in, in Hollywood. And um, it's particularly difficult, too, uh, because, as I say, the movie business has changed so much that screenwriters who would go in and pitch something that, you know, well, these two couples uh, fight and one of them's going to get divorced and the other one's going to stick together and it's the drama of humans and how they interact and relationships and stuff. They're not interested in that. They're interested in the amazing Spider-Man. And they don't trust older writers to know that material. Hmm. So, if you're an older writer, what what do you do? I mean, you. you I think you find different ways to work. Mm-hmm. One thing, uh, a lot of the older writers in my practice are writing independent films. Um, they're not pitching a movie to Paramount, 
but they're writing uh, uh, an independent film that somebody who wants to be in the movie business, who made a ton of money in Texas, is willing to put up $10 million to make the movie. Mm-hmm. You're not going to make your big script fee that you made at Paramount, but you're going to get a movie made. Uh, a lot of them are writing for premium cable channels that are breaking in. So you'll see older writers who are experienced and talented writing for stars in places like mm-hmm. Um, and doing really good work. I mean, um, I thought one of the best shows on last year was Boss with Kelsey Grammer on Stars. That was some of the best writing I'd seen on TV. And the best writing is on television right now, certainly in terms of characters, which is why so many actors are willing to go into television now, because it's where the writing is. Sure. You know, movies are just about CGI, and so it's not a writer-friendly medium, whereas television is a very writer-friendly medium. Hmm. Interesting. You know, this hour has uh, flown by as it always does when we talk. Um, any uh, any last words for the listeners? Well, I'll tell you what I, I think. It, it doesn't matter really what's happening in Hollywood with the business model. It doesn't happen matter really when people say publishing is over and everything. Every generation, there are doomsayers, and I can sound like one myself telling you all the reasons why it's really hard to do what you want to do, and yet every year people successfully do it. Mm -hmm. So the thing I always want to say to people is keep giving them you until you is what they want. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to write novels, keep writing novels. If you want to write screenplays, keep writing screenplays, because they do keep getting bought, and people do keep reading them, and people do keep making them. So regardless of what anyone says, including me, You know, I also like what Ben Hogan said when someone said, gee, you've been really lucky in your career, and the, you know, he was a great golfer. And he said, yeah, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And uh, to me, that should be like a little sampler above everybody's computer. Yeah. The harder I work, the luckier I get. That's excellent, and it's always a pleasure, Dennis. Well, it's always a pleasure talking to you, Barbara. You ask great questions, and I, and I hope your listeners and you got some of the answers you needed. I think so. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon. Okay, take care. That's Dennis Palumbo. He is a wonderful, wonderful person here, and uh, just always happy to talk with him. And you can find out more about him at DennisPalumbo.com, and you can find out more about Writers on Writing, which is on Wednesday morning at 9. If you go to my website, penonfire.com, you'll find out about events in the area and all sorts of things going on. So uh, until next time, thank you for listening and have a great week.